0: Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I am Aaron Stump, and today we are going to start Chapter 3 of this podcast. The first chapter was about computer-checked proofs and formal methods. These are techniques that allow us to um, prove in a way that can be checked by a computer and by a, by a relatively small and trustworthy piece of software to prove theorems about, in mathematics or about software. And um, the most convenient form of software to do computer check-proofs and formal methods for is, in my opinion, pure functional programs. And these are... um, So that was chapter two, was talking about functional programming. And um, uh, functional programming is a form of programming that's based around the idea of functions. um, As Sometimes people call them first-class objects first-class you know, quantities in your language. Not really that crazy about that way of talking about it because there are things you can't really do with them that you can do with some other things. But still, you can pass functions as inputs and return functions as outputs uh, to other functions. And so this is um, gives you a lot of power for writing really concise code. And we focus quite a bit on the power of functional programming for keeping things really short and compact. I'm at the possible risk of making them pretty hard to understand. And actually I'm working with, (laughs) I'm working with, um, Agda code on our CDL project. That is very concise and very elegantly written, but unfortunately Agda doesn't provide the tools that I was mentioning. We pretty much need in this case, which is the ability to get a lot of information out of the compiler about what is happening with our source program text. And Agda's compiler is pretty bad at this. Um, and so it, the code is cryptic, and it's hard to understand much about it. Um, I mean, Haskell is, I think, pretty much the same boat as far as I know. Um, and maybe there's more advanced ways to interact with Haskell, but um, mostly it, I have the same kind of problem. Really short, concise pieces of code can be pretty hard to understand if you don't get some information about what's going on along the way in the program. Anyway, um, so that was Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. And now, today, drum drumroll... Uh, <laughs> We are going to start Chapter 3 on the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And this is, you know, so this podcast is called the Iowa Type Theory Commute, and it's about type theory. And we are sort of coming to type theory in this path of first talking about computer check proofs, then talking about functional programs, and now we're going to take the plunge into it. But so far we didn't really discuss type theory exactly. We sort of mentioned in passing a little bit. But now we're going to sort of take the plunge into some aspect of type theory, a very important aspect of constructive type theory, um, which is what's called the Curry-Howard isomorphism. We're going to talk about this for a number of episodes. Um, So today, I guess the proper thing to do would be to just try to give you the basic taste for what is the Curry-Howard isomorphism and what is constructive logic, because Curry-Howard isomorphism is best most pristinely seen, I think I might have said earlier, for constructive logic, and so we need to talk about these things. So, uh, maybe we should start with constructive logic. So, you know, um, logic is uh, this development kind of coming both from philosophy and from mathematics, and now, you know, computer science and computer scientists have had, um, I think, a pretty big contribution as well in the second half of the 20th century and on. so, uh and certainly with proto-computer scientists like Alan Turing and these kind of people. Um anyway, uh, you know going back, um, one of my kind of heroes of the field is David Hilbert. Um and he was considered one of the, the maybe top two leading um mathematicians of his day. He's a German mathematician, um, and uh he he began um, the field of proof theory, which was applying the methods of mathematics to study the, the, the logical reasoning, uh, you know, practices of mathematics in the form of proofs. And the reason I mentioned him—he's mean, certainly worth talking about more—and his uh, the, the ideas of proof theory are, are quite relevant and related to type theory. But um, I mentioned him because. His advisor was Kronecker, and Kronecker had, uh, was, a, I don't, we, we didn't really have the, the terminology yet, I don't think, but he was um, adamantly opposed, as I understand from what I've read, to the idea of sort of indirect proof. He wanted direct proofs. What do we really mean by this? Well, <laughs> it's, it has to do with when you prove existential statements, like that something exists, or when you prove disjunctive statements that either this or that is true. And so, um, Kronecker wanted us, was strongly believed that we should be, um, when we say something exists, we should actually give a construction for it. We should not use some tricky, indirect reasoning to prove something exists without showing you the identity of this thing that exists. And it's sort of surprising, you know, and, and Hilbert, um, which I admire about him very much, was even though I, I'm developing a constructive type theory myself, um, there's certainly a strong case to be made for the use of non-constructive logical reasoning, namely that sometimes you can prove things non-constructively that we don't yet know how to prove constructively. So sometimes I can use a tricky, indirect argument to show that something exists, and I actually can't construct the, the thing that, that exists and this is surprising and so before I go too much further with this line of thought you should hear an example um, of the kind of reasoning I'm talking about Um, you know so say you I mean let's just give a baby case like say you're saying something like oh um, there exists a prime number um, between I don't know between 15 and 18 okay this is not obviously any mathematical interest this is just a toy example oh yes there exists a prime number between 15 and 18 and so how do you prove this little theorem? Um, I mean, as boring as it is, you can imagine maybe having to prove this, a theorem of this level of boringness on in a, in a computer check, like in a proof assistant as you're trying to prove something more interesting. So how do you prove this? You say, well, we're claiming something exists. I'll just tell you what it is. 17 is a prime number between 15 and 18. There you have it. I've proven that there exists a prime number between 15 and 18 by simply telling you what it is. Simple. And so, you know, in that case, you know, you tell me what it is, and then there's you have to verify, and in this case it's a trivial verification, you have to verify that the property you wanted this thing that you say exists to have really has of this witness, they sometimes call it, this this value that you present and say that's the thing that exists. It's seventeen. You have to prove the property of seventeen that, oh yes, it's between fifteen and eighteen, and indeed it is prime. So that's a perfectly it's a trivial, but perfectly good example of constructive reasoning for, for proving an existential, you want to prove something exists, just show me. I, for, for a number of years, I lived in Missouri. Its motto is the show me state. It's our friendly neighbor to the South here in Iowa, uh, of Iowa. And they, they call themselves the show me state. And it was this kind of, I mean, you know, they, it's not like their, their founding fathers were all logicians or say, but they just meant, you know, if you want to prove something to me, just show it to me. Give me concrete evidence, and then I'll believe you. Don't try to, you know, use, you know, sell me some snake oil without any direct evidence. Just show me. And and so constructivists are kind of Missourians. They're like, show me people, uh, <laughs> and they would fit right in in rural Missouri. Anyhow, um, so uh, so okay, so that's constructive proof. And you say, well, you know, sure, that was a pretty trivial example, but I can't really imagine. Like, okay, so what's the difference, what, what is that sort of set up in contrast with? Well, it's set up in contrast with non-constructive proof. And here is the, a beautiful classic example. I don't think I know a better one. It's so nice. It's so elegant. It actually proves something of mathematical interest. It's very short and easy. Um, so we can prove by a non-constructive argument that there are two irrational numbers, let's call them A and B, such that A to the power B is a rational number, okay? So that's sort of surprising. Um, And uh, this theorem actually has a constructive proof, it should be said. But I'm going to tell you it's the non-constructive proof. And so at the end of this non-constructive proof, we we will have established that the theorem is true, but we will not know which numbers A and B are the ones that satisfy this property. Okay, so here goes the proof. So the proof says, okay, we're going to we're going to show there's these numbers a and b such that are irrational, such that a to the power b is rational. Say, all right, um, let's do a case split. Let's consider two cases. Um, let's suppose let's consider cases on whether square root of two to the square root of two is rational or irrational. Okay, um, so we're saying it's either true or false. Square root of two to the square root of two is either true or it's false. Let's just consider both cases. So if it's rational, then bada-boom, we're done, because you know, even the ancient Greeks knew that the square root of 2, let me say even, I mean, admirably and amazingly, the ancient Greeks knew that the square root of 2 is an irrational number. So um, if if we've said, let's, let's do a case, well, let's just consider, is, it, is square root of 2 to square root of 2? Is it rational or irrational? Well, if it's rational, we're done. We'll take A to be square root of 2 and B to be square root of 2. Now we have two irrational numbers, A and B, so it's that A to B is rational by assumption, but we're in the case, we're just assuming it is. You say, that seems like totally like cheating. Well, it is kind of like cheating, but um, it's not really like cheating because we have to pay the piper now and we have to consider the case where square root of two to the square root of two is irrational. And then here goes the trick. Now you say, okay, if square root of two to the square root of two is irrational, I'm going to take that to be A, and for B, I'm going to take square root of two. All right, now, you know, doing this over the... Uh, audio here can be a little hard to follow. but So just think, we're going to take square root of 2 to the square root of 2, that's A, and we're going to raise it to the power of B, which we've said is going to be square root of 2. So if you take square root of 2 to the square root of 2 and exponentiate by square root of 2, then by basic properties of exponents, you're going to multiply this, the exponent square root of 2 and square root of 2, and you're going to get 2. And now you have square root of 2 squared. Hey, son of a gun, square root of 2 squared is 2. You've got a rational number. And so there you have it. In this case, we had two cases. What if square root of 2 to the square root of 2 is rational, or what if it's irrational? And in the case where it is um, rational, we're done. We take A and B, both to be square root of 2. And in the case where it's irrational, we say, oh, tricky. We're going to take A to be that number, square root of 2 to the square root of 2, and B to be square root of 2. And lo and behold, we proved our theorem. There are two numbers, A and B, that are irrational. And if you raise A to the power of B, you get a rational number. But we don't know at the end of this theorem, we don't know which, which the right A and B are. Is it the first, you know, is it square root of two and square root of two? Or is it, is it the first choice of A and B or the second choice of A and B? Why don't we know? We don't know because this proof critically relied on a non-constructive case split. We just say, oh, it's either true or false, let's consider both cases. That seems so innocuous and, you know, honestly, in a lot of um, you know, sort of day to day reasoning and, and about the real physical world, that makes perfectly good sense. But things get funny, you know, when we abstract away from reality like this uh, into the realm of mathematics. And so now, when we've given ourselves the magical power to just say, oh, either it's anything you want, it's either true or false. You know, while this makes good semantic sense for, for a lot of domains, um, if you're trying to think of a constructivist, you're trying to give constructions for things. And so this this principle, which is called the law of excluded middle in logic, that you can have either, for any formula you want, p, any formula P, you can have either P or not P is a valid formula. So you could split on whether things are true or false this way. Um, if you think about this cons- as a, a method of construction, it's saying um, any property you want, I'll tell you if it's true or false. I mean, like think about saying, like, I'll give you evidence. Yes, it's true. I'll give you evidence that it's false. How could that be possible? I mean, you know that that principle, um, constructively speaking, is not going to work. There's lots of properties, uh, you know, formulas and things that we can't. We don't have any algorithm to tell you. Oh, yeah, it's either true or it's it's false. Um, so algorithmically, law of excluded middle is no good. Um, at least in this form. And so that this proof that we just did about A and B. Um, is, you know, it's, it's using something that's inside it that's not giving you an explicit construction. It, and it can't. There's lots of classes of formulas that we can't explicitly decide is the formula true or the formula is false with an algorithm. Um, so anyway, so constructive reasoning says, okay, okay, we're not going to do that. That's not allowed. You're, and you basically can just remove law of excluded middle from your logic. Um, well, it's a somewhat delicate process, but intuitively you're Basically, just kick this principle out, and you and you're constructive. As long as you can't do this, um, then you remain in the realm of the constructive. Um, so, I mean that that statement is a little is a little rough. I'm not. I don't want to be quoted too precise on that. It's, but basically, we need to ban the law of excluded middle, and there may be some similar principles that we also need to make sure are not there. So, and in the end, when we prove something exists, we're like if we're back in Missouri. We Give you something, we sh- give you a witness. What is the actual concrete thing that has the property? And same thing about a disjunction. If We say a disjunction is true. We can't do this tricky thing of like, well, either it is or it isn't isn't true. Um, when you prove a disjunction constructively, you've either got to prove the one side or the other side. That um, yeah. one disjunct or the other disjunct. All right. So that was a bit about constructive logic, and um, that, and now I'm I need to stop it at my destination. And we'll talk the next time about um, the basic idea of the Curry-Howard isomorphism related to constructive logic. Thank you again for listening. Feel free to hit me up by email, or you can try out the discussion forum um, that's linked from the webpage for the podcast off of my own homepage. And thanks for listening.